Welcome to the Innovation in Action podcast. This is a series highlighting what is happening now in innovation. We'll look at this through the lens of the innovators we interview in the series who are making contributions globally across business, academia, government, and not-for-profit entities. We'll help you understand the secret sauce that enables these people to move the innovation needle forward. I'm your host, Sonia Montero. The podcast is brought to you by the ASQ Innovation Technical Community, which is part of the American Society for Quality, a global community of quality professionals with nearly 80,000 members. This podcast is for anyone who wants to learn more about what's happening now in innovation and for anyone who wants to make innovation happen themselves. I'm delighted to kick off the series with my co-host and the founding chair of the ASQ Innovation Management Technical Community, Peter Merrill. Peter is president of Quest Management based in Ontario, Canada. He is one of the foremost authorities of management systems and innovation, which he has implemented at such companies as IBM, AIG, and BlackBerry. He also chairs the Canadian Committee for ISO Technical Committee 279 on Innovation Management. Thanks, Peter, for your contribution to ASQ and for joining me today to kick off the series. Well, thank you, Sanya. It's great to be here. Let's talk about innovation. Uh, In fact, we often hear this phrase that necessity is the mother of invention, but invention is different from innovation. Peter, how do you view innovation? Well, invention is about creating something new, but really it has no value. I think of innovation as something new that makes people happy. There's some very interesting work that was done by Martin Seligman. He's the guru of happiness. And what he found was that happiness comes from having, first of all, fulfilling relationships with other people. And also, equally, from getting a sense of achievement in our lives. And, you know, 95% of innovators collaborate with others. And the other part When we get a breakthrough, it's an absolutely wonderful feeling. I think it's those two factors that make people love innovation so very much. Value creation would entice many to want to become part of innovation. When did innovation, specifically innovation management, become something that you wanted to spend time thinking and writing about? Well, I guess it was around about the year 2000. At that time... We were seeing that quality management was increasingly about managing information and knowledge. And that took me into exploring knowledge management. And knowledge management inevitably took me into innovation management. At the same time, I found a lot of people and organizations were talking more and more about innovation. And I realized I'd actually worked in this all my life, since my early days back in R&D. And through in my career, uh, being a uh, chief executive of a, a company that was design-led and very much an innovator. However, the thing I noticed was that there was a tendency to think that innovation was magic. And what was missing was, uh, should we call it a process approach or a system approach, They were missing from the thinking that was around at that time. 
Yeah, there's definitely this misconception that innovation doesn't follow a process. And yet the ASQ body of knowledge clearly defines an innovation process. Could you explain why there's that misunderstanding? Well, I think it's because, you know, the surprise, the excitement when a breakthrough actually happens, it does feel like magic. Uh, We call it either the epiphany or the aha moment. And that's really what gets people's attention. You know, we see examples in history where this happened. Uh, Archimedes, I guess, is the longest way back. uh, And his famous eureka moment on specific gravity. Um, And that came when he took a bath and he relaxed. But what many people don't realize is it followed a long period of hard work. He'd been asked to, by the king to see if uh, the king's crown had been adulterated with base metals by the person who made it. And uh, so Archimedes worked a long time on it. And what's important and what our physics teachers didn't tell us was that actually it was the relaxing which released the breakthrough. And similarly, you know, coming nearer to the present day, but still back in history, Sir Isaac Newton, his insight on the law of gravity, as we all know, came when an apple fell from a tree. What history doesn't always tell us was that he'd been working on that problem for 20 years, would you believe? And again, the breakthrough seems like magic, and it makes a great story but it's the outcome of a lot of work and it's the outcome of following a process. And, you know, there's an emerging consensus on what is the best practice process. That's very insightful. Um, And I I guess there's a difference between creativity and and innovation, right? Yeah, there is. Um, Creativity is only the first part of the innovation process. Creativity even follows a process, and it isn't magic. But certain people have creative skills. And, you know, those skills could be the ability to see color harmonies, the cadence of music, or the flow of words. In my own case, I love to paint. I love color. But that skill, that came from working with color since I was a child. And many of us did that as children, but then got taken away with it from it by other things. I still paint. I have to confess, I don't always get the time I'd like. But uh, I I really enjoy applying color. And I use very specific tools. The brushes, the paint, the canvas, or the paper, they're different for each medium that I work with. And when I paint, I follow a process. If I paint in oils, I paint from dark to light. If I paint in watercolor, it's from light to dark. So within that framework, which is a loose open framework, I explore creative alternatives. So creativity doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's within a framework, within a process, and that process allows that mental freedom. And for example, I will see a potential picture. It'll inspire me. And that's an opportunity to be creative. That's the opportunity. The the painting is the creative solution which captures the emotions that I felt when I saw the opportunity. 
it definitely sounds like creativity is a major component of the innovation process. Could you walk us through the steps of, of that whole process? Yeah, we've arrived at, at an agreement uh, pretty much internationally, certainly within the uh, ISO movement on what are the essential steps. And step one, uh, contrary to popular belief, starts in the marketplace. Innovation doesn't start in the lab. It starts in the marketplace. And to quote Plato, necessity is the mother of invention. So what initiates innovation is unmet need. I would simply adapt what Plato said to say, uh, necessity is the mother of innovation. That's step one. Step two is enter the innovator. They see alternative solutions. They're generally very creative people. This is the step that gets all the attention. This is where often we think it all came in a magic moment, but in actual fact, there's a lot of work here developing alternative concepts. So steps one and two are highly creative. Step three is eh, perhaps less exciting. It's the grinding number stuff where we evaluate all the preferred solutions. We analyze data and we narrow down to the best alternatives, maybe two or three of them. Then step four, that takes those, that narrow list of alternatives and narrows finally to the solution. And the real job at step four, the development step, is making the solution user-friendly, not putting in bells and whistles, making it easy to use. And the final step, step five, is where we deliver. We deliver to the user and importantly, we monitor the outcome to make sure that the solution we've provided meets the needs of the end user. And that whole process I've described, those five steps, may well involve iteration. But importantly, the good innovator does each step well and minimizes that iteration. You explained that um, the first two steps in the process were seeing an opportunity and, and then finding a concept solution. Many people say that innovation starts with an idea. Could you explain what's meant by an idea and if that's different from opportunity and solution? Yeah, what often happens is that opportunity and solution, steps one and two, merge into each other. And they're both often called an idea. Taking that example I just talked about of painting, I see a scene that inspires me. Uh, when I lived in Europe, I used to do a lot of uh, pictures of old buildings. That's what used to really interest me. You'll hear artists use that term all the time, something interested me. Well, I saw an old building. Now I, in North America, uh, I look at uh, scenery and landscapes. But either way, I see potential artwork. Something inspires me. But I let the inspiration build. Uh, that's the opportunity before I develop the artwork solution. A successful innovator, a serial innovator, definitely separates opportunity and solution. But let me take that and switch it to a business scenario. An organization may see an unmet need. 
For example, one that we're all talking about, the need to reduce carbon emissions. And take Tesla. They have developed a range of electric vehicles to meet that need. And those solutions, they're nice to see them on the road, but they involve developing many alternatives, a lot of incredible planning. The solutions came as a result of creative thinking and creative problem solving. One of the challenges we have these days is that we tend to put people into boxes. They're creative or they're analytical, but everybody's got a mix of both. And unfortunately, our education systems have tended to separate arts and science, and that's educationally convenient, but it's not necessarily the best for creating, shall I call it, the whole person. Uh, we need to reconverge our education. I was lucky when I went to school that, uh, you know, I, I had that sort of blended uh, arts and science education. And I, I must say that I've been glad of it through my life. And if you look back in history, people like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, they were both artists and engineers. You said that generating uh, the concept solutions was best done through that creative problem solving step. How do we start creative problem solving? First of all, we can't all be Michelangelo. And we are given that, uh, shall I call it, focused education that most of us have been through. So what we do is we create collective knowledge. We bring, bring together creative people and analytical people. Creative people, they're good at seeing that opportunity and finding alternative solutions. They're often not good at separating the two. We first define the opportunity. And Einstein had a great quote. He said, if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem. And we tend to think of Einstein as being a very analytical person, but actually he was a creative problem solver. And taking that example of the artists, they allow their inspiration to develop before they start uh, applying paint to the canvas. And so what do we do next? Well, once we've got the, should we say the opportunity, some people will call it the idea, we need to find a solution. And sticking with the, uh, the artist example, uh, Paul Cezanne, uh, the artist, he painted Mont Saint-Victoire many times because he kept seeing alternative solutions to the inspiration that he got. And if you look at the work of Linus Pauling coming up to the present day, he won a Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, it was actually for chemical bonding. And he said that famously, the best way to get a good idea is to get lots of ideas. So that's what innovators do. They use creative problem solving to explore alternative solutions. And there are many techniques that allow people to open their minds and make off the wall kind of suggestions. 
And what's interesting is when you look at creative problem solving, there's a very definite process. There are very definite steps to make it work. Important kind of, I'll call it a sidebar to this, is that when you're using collective knowledge and a group of people to find creative solution, it's important that that body of knowledge is diverse. And there was some great research done by Professor Scott Page at Caltech. He showed that diversity of knowledge in a problem-solving group actually beats IQ when it comes to solving problems. So once you, you've created the alternative solutions, uh, what, what's the next step? Well, interestingly, I'll go back to Linus Pauling. Uh, he said the best way to get a good idea is get lots of ideas. But what he went on to say was, and throw away the bad ones. And this is where the analytical people come in. For each of those lots of ideas that I just mentioned, we need data. We need data on time to implement the solution, data on cost to implement the solution. But we also need data on risk, risk against being able to actually complete the implementation. Will we be able to make this fly, as the saying goes? And in a commercial world, we want to evaluate, can other companies copy our solution? Do we have an edge like competencies or technology which stops copying? And so what engineers do is they take that data and they analyze it to create what's called proof of concept. And this step, this third step that I'm describing, we call it validation. And we use this validation step to narrow down to our preferred solution. And there's something else going on here. We're moving away from that creative work, which is what we call divergent thinking, creating lots of ideas. We're moving into convergent thinking, narrowing down to preferred ideas. And a little bit of a caveat here, creative people are not always good at data collection. So they may need help from analysts. They need to usually work together, but, this validation step, step three that I'm talking about now, is absolutely vital because this is the point after this where we're going to start spending money. So we don't want to spend money until we have a solid case for the solution, a real business case before moving forward. You said that um, having narrowed down the choices in the validation step, we then converge could you explain the difference between this divergent and convergent thinking? Yeah, yeah. The, the divergent thinking is where we find those many alternative solutions. Convergent thinking is where we narrow down and we don't suddenly jump from a large number to one. We go down in steps. You probably won't go immediately to one solution. In fact, I'm sure you won't. You converge to several solutions and in a, a work environment, that's where we do the lab testing, the bench testing. And from that, we get down to two or three solutions where we prototype. And you finally get to the preferred solution. And that takes us into the development stage. 
there isn't a sudden change from validation for development to development. There's a bit of an overlap. But when we get to the development stage, our challenge, our objective is to create a working solution. If uh, convergence starts with the development step, how does that differ from the validation step that you just described? Well, there certainly isn't a sudden transition and both activities overlap. The thing I always stress though, is the importance of having that good business case before we start spending money. The validation step is where we make the business case. Development is where we make the solution easy to use. And I really want to emphasize that. We may go into development with two or three options if the ease of use thing requires additional prototyping. But development, ease of use is the objective. Yeah, all that prototyping in development must be where we get cost overruns. What's the main reason for, for cost overruns? Yeah, um, no question, this is where the cost overruns occur. And um, the first main reason is inadequate proof of concept at the previous validation step. And what that leads to is going back and reworking the concept uh, even back to the second stage, the concept stage. A lot of this comes about because instead of doing validation properly, we rush to judgment. We rely on that famous thing called gut feeling, especially with senior people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a great believer in instinct, but people need to understand what instinct is. It's not magic. Instinct is simply rapid processing of data from past experience. That's what instinct is. The problem arises when people make uh, decisions based on emotion, especially if the idea was a senior person's idea um, and they cloud their judgment, they bias their instinct. And what we get into there is poor judgment. Are there any other reasons? Yeah, there is another reason that I come across a lot, especially in the software industry. And that is engineers love complexity. Um, you know, being an engineer, I understand that. I remember my, in my early days in industry, uh, all the time trying to build complexity into things because that's what we were taught to do. We were not taught to build in simplicity. The mission at this stage should be ease of use and thinking about what we call UX, user experience. Take an example of Apple. Steve Jobs, he wasn't the innovator. He was the salesman for Apple's innovations. The real innovator, the breakthrough guy was Steve Wozniak. They call him Woz. <laughs> He's still around. A uh, great innovator, great thinker. He saw the opportunity in the nightmare of MS-DOS. And those who can recall working with MS-DOS know exactly what I mean. What Steve Wozniak created was the Mac and the easy to use interface for the user. And that's why so many people love Apple because of that interface. 
Adding bells and whistles is not the job of the developer. The developer's job is to maximize user experience or UX as we call it. Users want ease of use. You included delivery as the final step in the innovation process. Um, many R&D processes don't include delivery. Why do you think it's important for the innovation process? Uh, and what are some of the issues that uh, people might encounter in delivery? Well, first of all, the job of R&D often ends when the solution has been delivered or leaves the business. Uh, the innovation job continues into the marketplace. This is where we discover unexpected problems. And that's generally the job of the salespeople who don't always think of themselves as part of the innovation process. They simply think, oh, well, let's get the order and deliver it. Um, but there are always new opportunities after the solution has been delivered. And that's why I see innovation as a cyclical process. Many, many people think of it as a linear or project-based process. I think of it from a business context, and I see it cycling. After you're delivered, you go right back to the beginning again and look for new opportunities. Project thinking is linear. Process and system thinking is cyclical. There's a second issue, though, uh, after we've delivered, and that is from a business point of view. Scaling and handling growth. And I learned this firsthand when I ran a brand in the UK. We doubled our size in 18 months, two years. And to do that requires cash and it requires people. And startups often manage both very badly. And unfortunately, that's why they end up selling out to the big boys. So handling growth, critical issue. And the work we've done in the ISO 56000 series has paid particular attention and looks at innovation from a system and process point of view. Uh, to conclude, why do you see it as important for innovators to follow a process and not just allow a random approach? Well, first of all, you want to be a serial innovator. I think most people do, not just a one hit wonder. If you're going to be a serial innovator, you need a process. You need a system approach, something that's going to take you back to the beginning and keep cycling. You have to be constantly looking for what's next. And certainly from a business point of view, you have to do that. You must always looking for ways as well to make your past successes even better. And mark my words, if you don't do that, someone else will. And there are stories all over the place of companies getting left behind because they were not looking for what next. Global success in particular for the emerging nations comes from providing this process and system uh, for small and medium enterprises. And that's why I'm so involved in the ISO mission because from a global point of view, this is something we all want that the emerging na nations are not dependent on the wealthy nations. And coming back to innovation itself, success is that great feeling, but you mustn't be satisfied with today's success. The innovation game moves very, very fast. So to be a winner, 
You've got to be agile and you've got to be able to blend that creative and analytical thinking and follow a process. Wow. Thanks, Peter. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today on innovation management uh, and, and the process. Um, thank you to our audience for listening to Innovation in Action brought to you by the ASQ Innovation TC. The ASQ Innovation TC is dedicated to building and providing access to the growing and dynamic body of innovation knowledge through partnerships, training, and online presence for people in the innovation space, whether experienced or new, uh, enabling them to become more effective forces for quality through innovation in their professional environments. To hear more episodes of the show, please visit Innovation in Action podcast on Spotify and click subscribe. Stay tuned for our next episode where we chat with Jane Keithley, a past chair of the Innovation Management TC. We'll talk with her about innovation culture. Thanks for listening.